Well, good morning, everyone. As the uh, pastor of relational discipleship, I figured we would have an extended time uh, because, you know, I'm the relational guy here, right? So we got to make sure we have uh, extended time of fellowship here. Uh, well, it's good to see you all. Uh, it's a joy to be here this morning to bring the Word of God uh, to us. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And as you do that, uh, I want to remind you that we're beginning a new sermon series today. And this sermon series is, is on discipleship. And our hope as a pastoral staff team is that through this series, God will stir us up to become lifelong leaders uh, and lifelong learners for his kingdom. Uh, that we would live our life through Christ, grow in Christ, live in community and give on mission. And as we do this, I want to uh, just share a few things before we get started. Uh, first off, it's simply this statement, that how you define a disciple will determine your life direction. What I mean by this is the way you see yourself as a Christian will determine what you do as a Christian, how you live as a Christian. And some people define a disciple as an overachiever Christian. Have you seen this? Maybe you look at a disciple as someone that's very developed, very committed, very disciplined. And in this perspective, essentially you have overachievers and you have underachievers. You have maybe the underachiever, the one who simply is here to get by. They get saved in Christ. Uh, they avoid punishment from sin. Uh, but they're lazy toward God. Uh, they don't do anything to seek the Lord or His mission. The mantra of the underachiever is seize, get degrees. There you go. There you go. <laughs> seize, get degrees. So just do what I need to. Press on in life. He knows that he is saved from he doesn't have anything or realize anything he is saved to. In this definition of a disciple as an overachiever, the disciple is an overachiever. He sees himself as disciplined, developed, and even worthy. This person is committed to church attendance, to tithing, to Bible study and prayer, evangelism, and outreach. She seems as more valuable because of her contribution. You see, this definition of a disciple as an overachiever and everyone else as an underachiever it creates an imbalanced church that's ultimately judgmental. 20% of the church is growing and serving, while 80% of the church just sits around and does nothing. The overs judge the unders as lazy deadweights not worthy of the kingdom. And the unders judge the overs as self-righteous show-offs that have big heads but little hearts. You see, this is a, a, a way of looking at discipleship that creates a lot of infighting. Division, bitterness, and competition. No grace. But biblically speaking, a disciple is one who is bound to become like his teacher. In the Old Testament, we see that it refers to a learner that's tethered to a master teacher. A disciple has a complete reorientation of his or her life around a teacher. The disciple learns through the life of the teacher, learns from the teacher, becomes like the teacher. In their book, Ann Spangler and Lois Verberg, their book, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, they give us some helpful definitions. To learn from a rabbi meant something other than sitting in a classroom and reading a book. Rather, it involved a literal kind of following in which disciples often traveled with, lived with, and imitated their rabbis, learning not only from what they said, but from what they did from their reactions to everyday life, as well as from the manner in which they live. The task of the disciple was to become as much like the rabbi as possible. So what is a disciple? 
Well, biblically speaking, a disciple is one who is bound to Christ and becoming like Christ. He is bound to Jesus by faith. He trusts in Jesus alone as his salvation, as his righteousness, as his hope, as his wisdom. But he is also growing because he is bound to Christ. This loving union with Christ compels him to conform to Christ. And being bound to Christ, he must become like him. So the question of the sermon today is how is it that we're bound to Christ? And how do we help others become like Christ? Well, let's now hear the word of God in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, risen King, God of all glory, we pray, O God, that you would open our eyes to the beauty and wonder of Jesus, that you would draw us into his love, that we might be bound to him by faith. Would you strengthen us, Holy Spirit, that not only would we be bound to him, but that we would see his beauty and become like him. We pray, O God, that you would open our eyes this morning, that we might trust in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the excitement of the Declaration of Independence turned to the dread of defeat only four months after its signing. The hope of deliverance from the tyranny of the British faded because of the overwhelming power of the British Army. Patriot Thomas Paine said it well. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of his country. But he stands, but he that stands it now, deserves the love and thanks of man and women. You see, these revolutionary rebels who had fear and concern about the condition of war, they had to increase their power because of the powerhouse of Britain. Benjamin Franklin was sent to the French government to plead their assistance in war. He persuaded the French with his rhetorical wit and persuasive power. The French signed up for battle on the side of the patriots, not only giving to the materials, but also men to fight. Their powerful presence compelled the soldiers to complete the mission. The British surrendered at Yorktown while walking through the lines of two flags and two lines of soldiers, the French and the Americans. You see, in a similar manner, when the Lord Jesus Christ marched down to Jerusalem triumphantly, there are many that believed he was declaring independence from Rome. The Israelites would finally be delivered from the tyranny of Rome. He would come and accomplish a political revolution that led to the restore the nation. But when Jesus continued his march, not with swords to fight, but with a cross to bear, people were very confused. He did not march to kill, but to be killed. He was the conquering king who was to bring liberty and revolution. But he died on the cross. You could see the discouragement and defeat on the faces of their followers. The night he was crucified, Jesus was abandoned by his disciples. He was left alone in his suffering. Christ was dead and buried. And the question that was stirred up around the town was, has our hope of revolution also died? But Jesus did not come to bring a political revolution that restores a nation. 
He came to bring a spiritual revolution that restores all creation under slavery to sin. You see, Jesus first appeared in resurrection victory to Mary. He sent her to announce this victory to the disciples. And even hearing his announcement, the disciples dismissed it as an idle tale. And even when the resurrected Christ himself walked towards his disciples to show his glory, it says in the text that some doubted. What does Jesus say to compel these doubters, these people that were defeated by the discouragement of life? How does he encourage them to complete the mission of spiritual revolution? Look down at your text in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus lifts up the eyes of his defeated disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. You see, in saying this, Jesus declares that he has fulfilled the universal reign of Daniel 7, 13 through 14. To this Son of Man will be given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Christ, who suffered for sin on Good Friday, rose again in victory in the resurrection. He ascended to the throne over all creation. And all authority, not only on earth, but in heaven, was given to Jesus. Go, make disciples. You see, this great commission to go make disciples is further explained and filled out by three words. Go, baptize, and teach. So what must we do if we are to go make disciples with a powerfully present Christ? First, we must go to the nations. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because we already said that Jesus is now the one who is universally reigning over all things. The prophecy declared that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve Jesus. This means that people from every people group from out throughout the world among every single nation would serve and worship Jesus in their unique tongue. Because of the spread of sin in Adam... Everyone, all humanity, was under the curse of sin and subject to the judgment of the king. But in Genesis 12:3, we begin to see the undoing and reversal of this curse through a descendant of Abraham. Through this future son, blessing would flow to all nations, all peoples, nations, and languages. We see in Revelation that this descendant is Jesus Christ himself, the Lamb of God who was slain. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says, Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people from where? Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Those peoples who are sold under judgment because of their sin have been saved by the purchase price of Christ's atoning blood. You see, Jesus' bloodshed not only pays the penalty of sin, but it also sends us out on mission. As Christ was sent, so we are sent to go. And Revelation 7-9 gives us a picture of the results and effects of this mission. There's a multi-ethnic church clothed with white robes in Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. Robes in perfect righteousness, they sing out in perfect pitch. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. You see, Jesus died on the cross as the King of the Jews, but He rose again as the King over all nations. You see, we declare Christ's ransom to the nations 
Because by His blood, He has already purchased. He has paid the price of our sin on the cross. So we declare this good news of Christ, that they might be bound to Him by faith. But what keeps us from declaring God's glory to the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples? For some of us, it's because we're too busy. We have a job, a family, a schoolwork, sports. We have hobbies. We need to practice bass guitar because we need to be good bass players, not just mediocre bass players. I have a lot of life goals that I am busy pursuing, and I don't have time to declare the gospel. But brothers and sisters, we have plenty of time, and there are plenty of people. We don't need to do more, but we need to see more clearly who is around us. We see our work, our family, our school, our sports, even our hobbies as places where we can declare to people the good news about Jesus. We don't have to go to the nations far across the sea, but pursue the nations right before our eyes. For others, our excuses were not equipped to declare the gospel. We don't know how to shift the conversation to the glory of God, our sin, or Christ's forgiveness. We don't know what to say about the good news, and we're terrified that they're going to ask that one question we cannot answer. So we just keep silent. But if we would listen to people's words and would see their spiritual conversations everywhere around us, we only need to listen to people's hopes and their groans. In their hope, we hear the echo of eternal longing and we point them to the eternal God. In their groans, and people, we have been groaning a lot this year. In their groans, we hear the agony of the cross. And we point them to the suffering Savior that suffered to save us and end suffering altogether. You see, beloved, we need to declare the true story of the world. That God made all things for His glory and for our good. That sin has brought judgment, condemnation, and death. And that Jesus Christ lived to give us righteousness. That He died to take our punishment. That He rose to restore us to life. And He is restoring all things in heaven and on earth. He died that death might live and He rose to give life to the world. He is the judge of justice. He is the prince of peace. He is the Lord of love, the ruler of reconciliation. He is the King of kings, the God of glory and of grace. Repent and believe. You see, we must call out to all those outside of Christ to realize who disciples them and where they are going, and where they are headed in their discipleship. They must turn from their false disciples and trust to Jesus, the true disciple leader. For others of us, we are too fearful to declare the gospel. What happens if I declare and they reject me? They may be offended by sin, judgment, condemnation, and death. I will say that's some pretty hard news to share. But Rico Tice tells us that if we're going to go to the nations, we're going to experience both hunger for God, and hostility toward God. We will have to cross the pain line in evangelism. This means it will likely hurt to share and be rejected. But we must remember the gospel. That is the power of God for salvation. And we must remember the gospel. That we are accepted and loved in Jesus and rejected and cut off by man. We enter the pain of evangelism because Jesus bore the pain on the cross. Christ will receive the reward of His suffering. The worship of all nations, all peoples, languages will serve Him. So, worship Christ. See His powerful presence and make disciples. Second, we make disciples by baptizing in the name. 
After preaching the gospel and making disciples bound to Christ by faith, we mark them with the mark of baptism. To baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to apply the covenant sign to those who are showing off the ransom of Christ. It shows the cleansing of Christ. And when we baptize people in the name, we're given the picture of this cleansing of all of our sin through the work of Jesus. It might be better to translate this phrase as baptized into the name of Christ. We are not baptized into the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice, it's the name. This points to the unity of this one God who saves us and the divinity of all three. This is the one God who saves us, whose glory passed before Moses as the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he'll by no means clear the guilty. You see, when we baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are declaring that one God saves us by the gracious decree of the Father, by the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. You see, this answers the question about why it is that we obey God. Because we've been brought into covenant love. And being bound to Christ, we must become like Him. Because we're in covenant bond with Jesus. This is why in Acts 2, after Peter calls the Jews to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, he says, this promise is to you and your descendants after you. This covenant sign conveys God's covenant promise to be faithful to God's covenant people. We commit in covenant obedience because God commits in covenant love. Just as John 15:10 says, As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And this will result in joy unspeakable. You see, we are not only baptized into covenant commitment with God, but also covenant community with His people. Being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to God's people. We are in covenant relationship with each other. This means that the people of God provides the primary context of discipleship. Now this starts in the home as we disciple our children and point them to Jesus, what it means to trust and follow Him. But the whole church is to disciple one another. We commit to teach one another, to encourage one another, to bear with one another, to admonish one another, confess our sins to one another, forgive one another. Having been baptized into covenant community, we have a safe place to be honest about sin. Many of us are just now returning to community after isolation with COVID. But there's nothing that makes us more isolated than unconfessed sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together says, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved and the more disastrous is this isolation. You see, sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that confessing sin to one another helps us to break through to community. In our confession of sin, we find the forgiveness of all of our sin and the fellowship of Jesus Christ and our brother. And I can testify that being baptized into covenant community has helped me grow in this grace. You see, soon after I came to Rivermont, I started a group for men struggling with sexual addiction called Samson Society. And this group of men come together weekly to speak honestly about sin struggle and to spur one another on towards Christ. 
We gather as men being set free from addiction to sin and the safety of covenant love. And because of this covenant safety, we no longer hide behind the mask of perfectionism. We share honestly about our imperfections and our unbelief. But we also share honestly about what is true about Christ in us. That we have been baptized into the name of our faithful Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I wonder if you have found a community with whom you can confess your sin. Because if you're looking for this community, you should look no further than the covenant community of God. Bound by the love of God and love for one another. If we will make disciples, we must go to the nations. We must baptize in the name. And finally, we must teach to obey. Notice that the text does not say, teach them to know all things. Alright, this gets a little confusing, right? Because your ESV translation says uh, that you would teach them to observe all things. And so are we just creating a bunch of observant people that look at the Bible, that read the Bible, that know the Bible? That's not what the text means. It means that we would teach them to obey all that the Bible teaches us to obey. This means that we take it in and we live it out. And that is that true knowledge of God results in true application of God's word. And for some of you, this just confirms everything you know about Christianity as a religion of restriction. I mean, we see this everywhere, don't we? For some of you, you see Christianity as a big stop sign. You believe that God's main goal is to stop you from doing everything that you find fun and enjoyable. Stop drinking. Stop having sex. Stop cussing. Stop listening to rock music while eating greasy pizza and lounging on a comfortable couch watching football unseasonally all throughout Sunday. Just stop it! Right? Have you all seen that? Have you seen that video of the Saturday Night Live skit where there's a counselor, someone comes into his room and someone confesses their struggle and challenge and the counselor looks at him and says, just stop it. And some of you think Jesus is the one who does that. All he cares about is looking you in the eye and saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop sinning, stop it. But the first thing we must see about Christ's command is it leads to our flourishing, not are languishing. You see, earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus teaches obedience, he says this is the blessed life. The Beatitudes show us that when we humbly obey God, we experience a life of abundance, not a life of emptiness. This is because obedience to Jesus' command is more like a green light. And what do we do in a green light? We move forward. We grow. We go forward to our destination. We know where we're headed, and we joyfully go. It's a green light to become all that God has made us to be. Jesus' command restores us to our truest humanity. It restores us like the good shepherd to pass of righteousness for his name's sakes. This means that Jesus' command returns us to the good life for which we were made. This is not to say that his command does not restrict our behavior, but these restrictions are much more like a do not enter sign than a stop sign. Right? What's the difference? Now, both of these signs, you will stop and not go forward. But a do not enter sign is not stopping for stopping's sake. The do not enter sign is a warning sign of a dangerous road ahead. That if we continue to live a life of rebellion against God, there will be a dead end. There will be a dangerous road that might even lead us to death. They are not stop signs, but warning signs. Jesus never restricts our life to ruin our life. But his restrictions return us to the high road of godly character. To love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, we teach them the command to depend versus the command to devote. The Sermon on the Mount begins with an acknowledgement that we are poor in spirit. And what does this tell us? But we don't have the resources to live righteously. We must depend on God to provide the riches of His grace that we might devote to God. We see this command to depend before devoting in His interaction with the tax collectors and sinners. Now, if you are a non-Christian in the room, this is really shocking. Because you realize that Jesus spent so much time with sinners that He was called a friend of sinners. And when He was at Matthew's house, the big tax collector among them all, Everyone judged him for it. Why are you hanging around gross sinners? And what does Jesus say? It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This call for the sick to repent is a call for a sinner to depend. It is a call to turn from self-reliance and selfish ambition to the Savior who forgives, heals, and satisfies. It is a call to depend on God's grace to save. And to change your life. And so non-Christian, I want you to know that you don't have to clean up to come here. Jesus Christ does that work himself. Jesus speaks judgment to the unrepentant, to those that don't come to him for cleansing. But to the one who comes in dependency and grace, he comes and he welcomes him who comes in in humility. He commands the one who is weary and heavy laden to find rest in his forgiveness. We come to rest in Jesus' forgiveness. Before we work for Jesus' kingdom, we depend in faith before we devote to work. Then Jesus commands us to loving devotion. And this devotion flows from a heart commitment, a heart changed by His grace. Throughout Jesus' teaching on the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, He moves the discussion from outward action to inward affection. He calls the adulterer to forsake his lust, the murderer his hate, the liar his fickle oaths, the vengeful his bitter resentment. Instead of these cancers of the heart, which only spread more vileness, we are to be filled with love. The greatest commandment in the law, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. And a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus does not throw out the commands, but takes us back to the heart of it all. The British surrendered to the Americans in 1781. The patriots were saved from the tyranny to live the American creed and follow their rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if we look at the American landscape today, 240 years later, we can see that our creed does not match our practice. When we define liberty and life, liberty, pursuit of happiness apart from discipleship in Christ, we see only death, slavery, and despair. For a nation built on life, we have seen too many senseless deaths at the hands of hate-filled people. For when we define life, we determine who deserves to live or die. Discipleship in Jesus promotes and preserves all life in God's image. And for a nation that's built on liberty, we've seen too many among us addicted to alcohol, to marijuana, to sex, food, and work. For when we define liberty, our pursuit of liberty makes us slaves to our own passions and pleasures. Discipleship in Jesus sets us free indeed. No matter your addiction, you can find in Jesus steadfast love that transforms. For a nation that's built on the pursuit of happiness, we have too many homeless and poor that are barely making it by. 
And we have too many rich that are adding prosperity but losing joy. You see, discipleship in Jesus connects us to God's presence where there is fullness of joy and His pleasures forevermore. The task of discipleship in our present nation seems overwhelming with the looming challenges of gender confusion and racial prejudice and hatred and political polarization. This is why we must remember the last promise of the Great Commission, that Jesus will surely be with us always to the end of the age. And because Jesus is powerfully present, we press on to make disciples of all nations. And as we do so, we wait for his return. Because when Jesus returns, he will usher in a new age, free from death and slavery, sin and suffering. Till then, worship the Lord Jesus, behold his powerful presence, and make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, powerful Savior, present Savior, full of grace and love, we pray, O God, that you would deliver us that you would deliver us from the disciples that we have connected our lives to, and you deliver us to you, the disciple-maker, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who frees us by his love and leads us by his grace. We pray that you would convert us to by that grace and transform us by that grace, that we would go and make disciples of all nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.